Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Friday, the 16th of October. The SARS coronavirus 2 has been found to survive for long periods on surfaces. And there may be a mutation of this virus at the southern tip of Chile, where 1% of the country's population has 20% of the cases of COVID-19. What do both these findings mean? And what are the consequences? Dr. Gary Groman shares his view with us. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. Dr. Gary Groman, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, I'm a consultant virologist and I've worked for the World Health Organization in recent years and prior to that, I worked for TGA for 17 years in the area of vaccines and regulation. And prior to that, I had a research career. Gary, there was a recent study reported uh, by Australian uh, researchers that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can live up to 28 days on surfaces such as mobile phone screens and ATMs. And it's said in the newspaper, uh, news that, it can, that people can get infected if they touch a contaminated surface and then their face, nose or mouth. So first question is, this is a bit of a change to what we thought previously as to how long viruses can live. I'm not sure whether you know anything about this latest study, how it differs from previous ones. And then the next question is, has our current situation in Australia supported the fact that fomites are a major mode of COVID-19 transmission? Yes, look, I'll take the last one first. I think fomites are a major cause of transmission and we do need to be careful. So all the various advices that are coming from the governments uh, about being careful in that area are so important and washing hands is obviously a key thing. So um, this has come up before about survival on surfaces, but I think there's a few things we need to understand. Firstly, they are laboratory studies. Uh, so they're in ideal conditions. Uh, um, now, these kinds of viruses, coronaviruses, we know from other coronaviruses, are actually very poor survivors, just like any other envelope virus, for example, influenza. And while they might be able to be detected, that's quite a different thing from giving somebody an infectious dose. So survival, so-called survival, or detection is really a better word, is quite different to infectious dose. Can it really infect you? People got all upset about the possibility of money, for example, transferring viruses, but that's been shown not to be the case. Um, it, it isn't the case that just because there's one virus there or that it's detected, it means that we'll get an infectious dose. A dose. That has to be separated. Both those ideas need to be separated. So the infectious dose needs to be worked out. And I think the reality is that 
yes, from time to time, if there's immediate contamination on a pen or something like this, and then it's picked up by someone and they touch your nose or mouth or eyes, then they may well transmit the virus if there's an infectious dose, not if it survives or not. And that's, and that's the difference. Okay. Another thing to consider on this, uh, David, is, is the fact that we think of viruses almost in two dimensions instead of three. Viruses survive in droplets, so they're generally in groups of 100 or thousands. They're not there just one at a time. And it's not the case that one virus will uh, give you um, an infection. There's probably at least 100 or more. In fact, that hasn't even been worked out but let's say it's similar to influenza, then it's going to certainly be um, quite a number of viruses before you get an infection, just in the same way with bacteria. You might, you might need a thousand bacteria to give a human being an infection, not just one or two. Now on surfaces, they survive in groups or clumps. And what they do is the ones on the outside in a three-dimensional form tend to dry out and die. They can be affected by... Um, uh, disinfectants and drying out with air and temperature and ultraviolet light. And the ones in the middle will probably survive and you'll be able to detect them uh, by PCR techniques. Uh, but whether that translates into an infectious dose is a whole different story. And those kinds of experiments have not been done. All as they've done is look for so-called survivability over a 28-day period on the surface. And what worries me about these sorts of studies is that they certainly in social media circles tend to create more uh, rumor and um, stress than it, it really is worth. Uh, so while these things are carried out very much in virus-friendly conditions in a dark room with stable temperatures, stable humidity, it is not the real world. And um, this needs to be understood. So people shouldn't uh, make too much of this. Yes, they survive on various surfaces and they'll survive for some hours, but whether that translates into an infectious dose is another matter. And obviously the mitigation of all this is clearly being careful and washing hands and hand hygiene and cough etiquette, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we've put in place. At the same time, Gary, I would just like to ask about our Australian situation and the wonderful work done by our public health tests, trace, and isolate teams. So far, it appears to me that almost all the cases, bar a very small number, are all linked to previously known sources of people having an infection. I, I think, as a GP, I'm not very good as a specialist, I'm thinking that if there was a lot of transmission via ATM screens and doorknobs, that there may well be a larger number of unknown cases where nobody knows where they catch it from because they have no idea which door not they touched. Am I right to think like that or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. And that was going to be my next point, that uh, if this were the case, that they could easily survive in the environment like that, then all common surfaces and areas would be able to transmit the virus and we would be seeing so many cases that we couldn't trace back to an original source. Uh, but this just isn't the case. Now, if, if you're in a school or a cruise ship and there are common areas, corridors, doorknobs and so on, they may well be agents of transmission and that needs careful cleaning and so on. But even then, we uh, don't see great spread in schools. Uh, but we did on cruise ships, but probably for other reasons, although fomites might well have been uh, part of the whole story. 
uh, cleaning is important, uh, but um, it's not the main way I would have thought that this virus gets around. I still think the main way is by respiratory droplets and social distancing and so on is just as important as uh, being careful of other forms of transmission. But I certainly agree with you. We'd be seeing a lot more cases that we couldn't trace to a single source. You, you segued into the next point, Gary, very nicely. Uh, I hear that New South Wales are going to open up shortly and we're aiming to increase the number of people gathering in outdoor venues. Now, if we accept that aerosol transmission is actually very important as a mode of transmission, and people are now going to gather in larger and larger numbers, what measures or steps should really uh, we take uh, to ensure that we minimise the risk of transmission? Well, I think the current situation where um, there are rules about so many people per square metre, if I can summarise it so crudely, uh, having um, those sorts of restrictions within a particular space are very important. And uh, people in restaurants and bars and so on, or at weddings and, and other such venues, need to make sure that these rules are implemented. This is the important thing. We're not about elimination. We're past that point. I mean, elimination is certainly a strategy uh, for when a virus like this first breaks out and things like closing borders and uh, uh, minimising travel are absolutely the right thing to do to try and eliminate the virus. And New Zealand's been 99% successful in this and we've been about 90% successful, just one, one main area in Melbourne, obviously. But, uh, but these viruses will still come back because of the cohort of asymptomatic infection. We can control the symptomatics by testing and asking them to stay at home. Mm -hmm. We can control the symptomatics and impart the asymptomatics by social distancing and so on. But asymptomatics don't know they've got the virus when you're in that phase. Um, and so the virus will be endemic in the community for a while yet. And then a second wave will come or a third wave will come. And that's going to be the case. But we can't eliminate the virus now in my view, but what we can do is discriminate. Mm -hmm. And we can uh, use reason and inference to uh, make proper decisions uh, we can use discernment uh, on various, um, in, in, in various places to ensure uh, that the virus is minimised in terms of its ability to spread from one person to another. As we've said on this program before, a number of people have said that the virus itself doesn't spread in the community. It's people that spread it. And this is important to understand. That's the main way it spreads, is from person to person. So ensuring that distance a safe number uh, in a particular space and ensuring all the other measures that we've put in from hygiene through to masks, hand washing and so on, are really, really important at this stage and will continue to be important until uh, the virus uh, disappears of itself uh, probably in a few years' time, as most pandemics seem to do. Gary, from my reading, uh, the change that will probably occur in New South Wales is more the fact that we're going to increase quite largely the number of people who can gather outdoors and eat outdoors. Yes, it's outdoors. There's no mention of the four square metre rule. Uh, it's known that numbers. Um, and, and of course, um, we have started to become a little bit complacent that outdoors means safety. But 
I, I put it to you that I wonder whether the American Rose Garden uh, scenario where people were outdoors and yet we had a super spreading event doesn't make outdoors necessarily safe. Is that right? No, that's right. There, there still has to be space considerations outdoors, although the rules will be a little more relaxed than indoors. Um, uh, it, it's essentially, it, it, like any of these respiratory viruses, they will do well indoors in terms of spread, survival on surfaces and so on. There's much less survival on surfaces outdoors because of UV light and wind drying things out and so on. Uh, but space considerations still need to be in place. Otherwise, you really do run the risk of a festival or a large gathering, football match, whatever it might be, of spreading it very, very easily from one person to another. And they've done the right thing uh, with, um, for example, the um, uh, French Open tennis by restricting the numbers. Various football matches, yes, people are allowed, they're still outdoors, but there's been a restriction. And this, you know, this makes sense uh, to, to have these restrictions in place. It, it raises a level of awareness and begins to minimise the possibility of transmission from person to person. And anybody at risk should be encouraged to wear a mask if they have to go out or preferably to uh, stay home if they don't need to travel. All these things still need to be in place, unfortunately, for some time. But it doesn't need to be lockdown. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that New South Wales is opening up and the other states should also open up step by step as they're do, doing in a cautious way. Mm. I think you already mentioned exactly what I was going to ask is that uh, it doesn't seem as if the call to masks use was very strongly stated in the you can gather outside in groups of 500. And of course, it all depended if you're in a big football stadium that seats 80,000 people and you can be spaced apart or whether it's 500 people gathering for a social game of touch football in a very small area. So th there doesn't seem to make any differences. Uh, and my thought was, what if really social distancing is actually quite difficult? And you just mentioned that it doesn't mean that masks are eliminated. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you. I, I think people should be wearing masks when they're out and about as much as possible, particularly those at risk. But everybody needs to understand that they might be a carrier of this virus and carrying it asymptomatically yeah. and not realising it. Uh, we all carry viruses asymptomatically of one sort or another um, uh, from time to time. Uh, and with uh, this particular respiratory virus, there will be a number, they think it's about 20%, that are carrying the virus. Um, now, you know, depending again on infectious dose that people haven't talked about a lot, it'll be in the infectious dose, a dose that determines the severity of infection, whether it's mild or severe, and then also the condition of the immune response of the recipient uh, will play an important role. And that's why I'm sure we don't see uh, so many infections in children because they're more tolerant. Uh, we don't see that many infections that are uh, more than mild or the mostly asymptomatic asymptomatic in, um, in adults that are 18 to 55. The vast majority of mild to severe disease uh, is basically in the over 70s still, uh, with occasional cases here and there, but they don't end up in hospital, they don't end up in ICU, very few of them, and they certainly uh, don't contribute in a large way to the mortality rate. So, um, you know, we, we need to keep refocusing, you know, what the data is actually telling us 
and I think a lot of the Victorian experience is suggesting that a lot of the a lot of the infections are because people at home in their own home setting are relaxing a bit too much and social distancing also uh, you know people need to be aware of it in the home setting and with friends and so on as well in a football stadium or a, a festival of some sort there'll be very little social distancing that can be controlled and it will increase the risk of passing virus from one person to another which will simply maintain the virus in the community probably at a low level to begin with hopefully there won't be outbreaks thank you gary i'm going to just move to a completely different topic now uh, i've just been reading the news that scientists are investigating possible coronavirus mutations in the southern tip of patagonia where uh, it's a very small place you know they, they have about what one percent of chile's population but 20 percent of the total covid 19 cases just asking gary what if it is actually true that there is in fact a new mutation now that seems to be so contagious the gizay database uh, has well over 100,000 sequences now of all the coronaviruses around the world. And it'll be interesting to see what's uploaded in due course on those viruses. Now, mutations are occurring all the time, but none of them are serious enough. It's not like influenza, where the virus is highly promiscuous and mutating and reassorting all the time, um, uh, avoiding the immune response. The coronaviruses don't mutate at such a rate or reassort at such a rate, even though they've got the potential to. But the rate is quite slow when you look at um, the Gizeh da database that stores all the sequences. Of course, point mutations will occur uh, and they will occur over time. But whether that leads to more severity, that's not really been seen yet. If anything, it's the other way around. Um, as pandemics go on, the virus generally becomes less severe and I believe, at least, that we're seeing that in this case as well over time with 100,000 sequences plus in the database. There's no real evidence of virulence here. However, another thing that we really haven't had time to study or consider much is the influence of genetic background. So genetic background might well make other, uh, certain groups more susceptible to this virus and give them more severe disease, not necessarily due to mutation. Again, that's, that's got to be studied and, and understood, and, and we don't understand much about that yet. Final point on this, will it change anything with all the COVID-19 vaccines currently being tested? No, it won't. I mean, the vaccines are a bit like a ship, you know, once it takes a particular direction and takes a long time to turn around. Uh, the vaccine programs will continue. They're in their phase two, three clinical trials. Uh, quite a lot of them, as we know, uh, will get the results in the, this year, beginning of next year, whenever they arise. It won't change anything in terms of vaccine production, but having made a vaccine and shown it to be efficacious, it then might be possible, just like flu, to simply change the strain. That'll be up to regulators to approve, but it might be possible then to change the strain if there is a significant mutation. I don't expect that there would be. Um, we still don't know if one vaccine uh, will be a one size fits all to give immunity to all the clades around the world. We just don't know that. Uh, and that's something again, that will hopefully come through in the efficacy trials, the large scale ones. Um, and it's good that many of the companies are doing their trials in different parts of the world because it means that in their phase three study, 
um, those enrolled in the program are very likely to come across different clades. So uh, that, that will all be very interesting uh, data. Um, but if there is um, a necessity to change the strain of virus over time, and there might well be in a few years' time, then I'm pretty sure just like flu, that could be fairly easily done with a strain change as the manufacturing side of it and the efficacy side of it would have already been given approval and be signed off. So, Gary, regarding these two news items then, the fact that the viruses seem to live for a very long time on heart surfaces and the fact that they may be a more contagious mutation in south uh, of uh, Chile, what you're really saying is, David, look, fair enough, it might be the case, but you know what? It doesn't seem to change very much what we're doing now because what we're doing is important and safe. You've got to wash your hands, you've got to keep your social distance, and if you can't keep social distance, wear a mask. And, um, and at the same time, uh, with the viruses, you're saying that they're mutating all the time, there are lots of strains. If anything, um, mutations might be less, if you like, virulent or less, um, they might be more contagious, but maybe less mortality. But even if there was a big change, later on, there's no great problems in changing our vaccines to cover the mutations. Yeah, no, that's a good summary. And there's not much really for me to add. I think one thing I will say is that have a look at the second wave going through Europe right now and the US, and you'll notice that the deaths are far fewer. Mm. And that, again, indicates to me how typical of a pandemic, the first wave um, uh, can certainly be quite disruptive and there can be a lot of deaths. We saw it with H1N1 in 2009 as well. We've seen it with many uh, influenzas uh, over time. And the second wave, yes, there's still deaths, but there are fewer in terms of per capita. Um, uh, case fatality rate starts to go down and uh, we'll find that with the third wave as well. And in the meantime, hopefully there will be vaccines and more and the all important treatments available. Our medical systems will get better and better. But as, again, Australia and New Zealand and one or two other countries that have uh, certainly come out on top here, uh, very, very few infections per uh, capita and certainly very, very few deaths. Uh, so I think all Australians can be very proud about that fact. And uh, the response in general has really been quite uh, terrific. I was just going to leave you when I suddenly realised that um, has WHO taken a turn on lockdowns, the advice on lockdowns? Well, I, I can only say I hope so. <laughs> there have been one or two people that have, have now come out and said uh, from WHO uh, that have said that... Uh, lockdowns don't work. And, and this is because they're very important in the beginning of the outbreaks. They need to be uh, firm and, and strong, uh, these lockdowns, when they're implemented. Uh, and if that's the case, then you have a very good chance of stopping person-to-person -person spread. And we've seen this with H7N9 in China in recent years. We've seen it with H7N7 influenza in Europe. Uh, we've seen it in animals, when people isolate animals. When a disease comes in, it's very important to lock down, stop travel, get people to stop moving or animals, whatever it might be. It's very important. Uh, and then um, if that works, it, it not only buys you a lot of time, but um, it also uh, has the possibility of eliminating the virus. But once it gets into the population and 
globally now and start spreading around the world, it makes it very difficult to stop endemic infection. Places like in Australia, New Zealand and isolated communities still have a chance if they control travel and control movement within. Uh, and travel, international travel, I mean. Uh, then that, and that's really important. And where there are cases, there's good testing and follow-up, tracing and isolation. And we're doing all that with tremendous success in most parts of Australia. And now Melbourne is also uh, coming under control. But lockdown itself doesn't work, only in the initial stages. Um, uh, then after that, it's, it's a matter, as I said before, um, it's, it's not a question of elimination anymore. It's a question of discrimination and discernment and then deciding what the best way is to control the virus and protect people, particularly in the vulnerable groups. Mm. But once it's in the community, it's very difficult to stop. We've never been able to stop flu either, except through these um, same measures that we're using for COVID. We've noticed that all respiratory infections have either disappeared or gone down enormously, like flu, uh, many common cold viruses, uh, pertussis, norovirus, uh, all are because of hygiene and distancing, uh, a lot of infections that are very common in the community have diminished enormously. So it shows you the power of social distancing and education and awareness, and this is the way we need to keep continuing. Very good. I have to correct myself. Uh, the news article was about not the WHO, but the special envoy on COVID-19 at WHO has sparked questions about the legitimacy of lockdowns to stop the spread of coronavirus. And thank you for answering those questions for me. It's always great talking to you, Gary. I learned so much. And it's really good to put these things in perspective and say, whilst they might sound dreadful, uh, to fully understand it implications and realize, wait a minute, we're doing okay. We just got to keep with the same old, same old. Yes, yes, I agree with you. And you have to be careful of scientific reports that are then picked up by media. This is part of the issue. Um, the scientific reports themselves and their conclusions are usually quite different to the media conclusions and let alone social media conclusions. So um, one, one does need to be careful. But of course, it affects uh, patients that visit their GPs and then uh, they ask questions of the GPs themselves and they, you know, everybody needs reassurance at this time. And I think a, a steady approach is really the only way to go. Thank you for your very wise words, Gary. You have a very good day. Thank you very much, David. Take care. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.